Where is Jesus? Um, What is he doing now? Uh, This is a question that comes up quite often. I get asked it a few times a year by students in RI. It's a question quite often we're not so sure about. In some ways, the earthly life of Jesus is easy to get a handle on. Uh, There are four Gospels, four biographies, records of Jesus' life, and although it blows our minds... We at least know he did things like heal the sick, still the storm, and most significantly die and rise to life again. The earthly life of Jesus is somewhat easy to get our heads around. Many Christians are also very interested in what Jesus will do in the future. There's lots of discussion between Christians and different understandings of the details around the return of Jesus. So there might be confusion and disagreement there, but for many Christians it's an area we think about a lot. But what about now? What about today? What is Jesus doing now? Where is he? Amongst many other things, this is what the book of Acts is about. It's very much the question that is answered in the first chapter of Acts. And the answer it gives to this question is really encouraging. It gives us great reason and motivation to live wholeheartedly for Jesus, to get on board with God's saving mission. Acts is a sequel. Uh, It's the second part. It follows on from Luke's Gospel. Uh, It'd be really helpful if in our Bibles we had the book of Acts straight after the book of Luke's because if you listen to the way Luke's Gospel begins, you'll hear how Luke wrote the two parts to be read together. I'm going to put it up on the screen. This is how Luke begins. Uh, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the world of the word. Uh, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke tells us he's a researcher. He wasn't himself a witness to the things Jesus did, but he's talked with the eyewitnesses. And in part one of his work, he records an orderly account of the things Jesus did and said. And we see in verse 4, he's written to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus might be a real person, though the name means God-lover. So it might be Luke doesn't have a particular person in mind, but he's writing to us to everyone who loves God and wants to have certainty about Jesus. So that's how part one starts. Have your Bible open to Acts chapter one and you'll see how part two sounds some of the same notes. So this is Acts one, starting from verse one. Now verse one says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Uh, The word began is very important. 
Straight up in the first sentence, Luke's telling us something. He's telling us Jesus began doing things and Jesus hasn't stopped. Jesus hasn't stopped. Acts is a strange kind of sequel because at the end of part one, at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus dies and he rises again and he's really alive. Many convincing proof, verse three says, Jesus is alive physically, but then he goes to heaven. As verse two puts it, he's been taken up to heaven. Now, exactly what that means, we'll come to it later. But the point for now is Luke's gospel ends with Jesus, the main person in Luke's gospel. Jesus is absent. And Acts begins by telling us he's absent, but he's active. He's not really absent. Jesus began to do things in his earthly life and ministry. And whatever this taking up means, Jesus hasn't stopped Jesus is living and continuing to do and to speak. But it's not just Jesus who's continuing to act. It's God. It's the triune God. Verse 4, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, This also is really important. Uh, Some people have this idea that in the Old Testament there's God. Uh, Maybe they talk about Yahweh or the Father, and then they think, okay, that's the Old Testament bit. Then Jesus takes over for the 33 years of his life. He dies and rises again, and then he goes away. So the Father's gone, now Jesus is gone, and now it's the Spirit's turn. But that's not what the Bible says. It's always the triune God at work. And we see this here in what Jesus says. Uh, This is what we'll see over and over again in the book of Acts. The God who is Father, Son and Spirit is always at work, always at work in his mission to save. And we see it in verses 4 and 5. God the Son has suffered, he's died and risen again to win salvation. He is fulfilling what God the Father planned and purposed and promised And the mission of salvation is going to be empowered by God the Spirit. The gift, the promised gift of God the Father. It's the mission of the triune God. This isn't just about getting our theology right, which would be important if that was the only reason this was important, but this is actually great news, isn't it? Because it means that all of God, the same God who's been active for all eternity and all history... All of God is totally involved in saving his people. All of God is totally involved in saving his people. Now, verse 3 talks about a 40-day period. 40 days of Jesus' resurrection life on earth. 40 days spent teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. And the disciples are excitedly impatient They've just seen the dead raised. They are are 100% sure Jesus is God's promised king, the desire of nations, the one Israel has been waiting for for generations. But they're getting impatient. The resurrection of the dead has occurred. Surely there should be more things happening now than Jesus teaching this small bunch of disciples. And so they asked Jesus, are we there yet? 
How much longer do we have to wait? Verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Come on, Jesus, let's get the show on the road. Aren't you going to make Israel great again? Now, on one level, this is the right question to ask. Last week, we were in Haggai. Last week, we heard God's promise to Zerubbabel. God's promise to shake the world, to overthrow nations. God's promise included making a human being his signet ring with his authority, hinting of the the promise to David of a chosen everlasting king. On one level, their question is right. But on another, it's wrong. And we see this by how Jesus answers their question. Jesus has a habit of doing this, doesn't it? People ask him one question, and his answer shows that their question isn't quite right. He rejects the premise of their question. He gives them a two-part answer. The first part is, don't worry about times and dates. That's the Father's business. And the second is, stop focusing on one nation. Stop focusing on one nation. God's plan is multi-ethnic. And because God's plan is multi-ethnic, God's power isn't going to be shown in swords or politics, but in witnessing to Jesus. Verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Once again, this is a Trinitarian work by the Father's authority and in the Spirit's power, they're going to witness to Jesus. What's the Spirit going to empower them to do? Here they have the presence of God with them. What's he going to give the power to do? Not to rule as kings. Not to be cultural leaders, but to proclaim the news that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is risen and reigning, that Jesus is God's saving king for the whole world. This is a radically different kind of kingdom than what they'd imagined. God is restoring his kingdom. As the message of Jesus is taken from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, verse 8 is a summary of God's plan. And we see this verse driving what God does through the book of Acts and today. A kingdom spread throughout every nation, not just Israelites, not just Jews, but Gentiles too, made up of people who speak every language with all kinds of different cultural backgrounds. I just want to pause a bit on this idea of of a kingdom because I think we see the same misunderstanding of God's kingdom with Christians today. Uh, Some Christians rightly start with the truth that Jesus is Lord. He is risen and reigning. But they make the wrong conclusion. Uh, They conclude that this means the kingdom of God comes when Christians have influence and power in politics or in the media or in schooling or in business and finance. There's a thing called the Seven Mountains Theology, and from what I can see, it makes the same mistakes as the disciples. It looks for God's kingdom, the right thing to look for, but it looks for it in something other than the gospel. 
And this way of thinking, although it didn't start in evangelical and reformed circles, it is creeping in. But Jesus says the kingdom is about proclaiming him. Proclaiming he is risen and reigning. That's what God's power is doing, is saving people from their sins throughout the whole world, making a kingdom of every nation and every language and every tribe. It's not just one nation. It's multi-ethnic. And their message is a message for the whole world because Jesus is king of the whole world. And that's what the disciples see as just after Jesus gives them this job to do, he's taken up to heaven. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, this is the last event the disciples see Jesus, uh, the last event that they're witnesses to. Jesus' ascension, his bodily ascension to heaven. It's the fulfilment of what we read in Mark 13 or Luke 21. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. It's the fulfilment of the promise of Daniel 7 of one like the son of like a son of man coming on the clouds and being presented to the ancient of days and receiving a kingdom. A kingdom where people from all nations serve and honor the son of man. Why is it so important for the disciples to see this? To see Jesus ascend with their own eyes? It gives them confidence that Jesus really is the Son of Man, that Jesus really is God's promised King, that Jesus really has all power and authority for every nation. That they see Jesus taken up in his human body is important. The same Jesus they have known, it's the same Jesus who now rules. The one who showed grace to sinners, who welcomes those who are excluded. This is the Jesus who reigns on high. And also they know Jesus will return. In the book of Acts, we'll see how just as Jesus suffered, his people will also suffer. But the ascension of Jesus means this isn't the forever story. Jesus will return to judge and make all things new. So what is Jesus doing now? He's ruling and reigning and he does this through his disciples as they bear witness to Jesus and as through them the kingdom extends and expands to every nation. This is why after Jesus ascends they don't do nothing. In verses 4 and 8 the disciples are told to wait to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus' ascension isn't the starter's gun for bearing witness, but it's also not time for sitting on their hands. If God is restoring his kingdom through witnesses, 
then they need a fullness of witnesses. This is what the next event of replacing Judas is all about. Verse 12, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, the Judas who's mentioned in verse 13 isn't the bloke who betrayed Jesus. We're about to hear what happened to him. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. It's a pretty gruesome way to end. Uh, The point Peter makes is, although Judas had been one of the twelve, he has failed. Judas failed to bear true witness to Jesus, and because of this, he's to be replaced. Verse 20, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry with Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. The thought process as they make this decision is is interesting, isn't it? Uh, The two Psalms Peter quotes are Psalms of David, Songs written by the great king of Israel, by the Holy Spirit, the great king of Israel, the ancestor of Jesus. And Peter rightly understands that this is the kind of thing that Jesus would have been teaching for those 40 days. Peter rightly understands the Psalms are the songs of the Messiah. They point to, they are fulfilled in Jesus. And so when Psalm 109 says, may his days be few, may another take his place of leadership, Think about Jesus saying these words. Who's he saying them about? They were originally written by David about one of his betrayers, one of his enemies. Who's Jesus saying them about? Judas, the one who betrayed him. This is significant for two reasons. The first is, this psalm isn't saying every time an apostle dies... He's to be replaced. 
Judas is replaced because he proved himself a false witness, a betrayer of Jesus. The Bible doesn't say the Christian movement needs 12 leaders. The Bible doesn't say churches are to be led by apostles or that we need a group of 12 men to be leaders of the worldwide Christian movement. Judas was replaced because of his betrayal. He failed as a witness. Uh, But secondly, there's another thing going on. Uh, Luke emphasises that once again, there are 12 apostles. He lists the names in verse 13 of the 11 and finishes by saying Matthias is added to the 11 in verse 26. Why 12? It's because this is an echo of the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, The 12 apostles are the seed, the foundation for the kingdom of God, a reconstitution, a restoration of all Israel. Although the 12 don't come from each tribe, or at least we're never told this, the 12 of them together is a way of saying God has kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. There's 12. Not one has been lost. And these 12 are all witnesses to everything God has done in Jesus. Along with the 11, Matthias was there when John baptised Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven say, This is my son whom I love. Along with the 11, Matthias has seen the resurrected Jesus, heard him teach, seen him ascend. This is what qualifies him to be an apostle. He's seen it all so he can witness to what he's seen and heard. He knows what Jesus has begun to do so he can be part of and and witness to what Jesus continues to do. Uh, What is Jesus doing now? He's ruling. He's the ascended son of man. And he expresses his reign. His kingdom is established, is restored as the message of Jesus, that he is God's king, as that message is taken from Jerusalem and Judea, the the region around Jerusalem, to Samaria, we'll find out more about that later on, and to the ends of the earth, like Australia. And what's this mean for us? Be encouraged. Our King, our Saviour, is reigning in glory. And so be encouraged about his mission. Now, you and I cannot be witnesses in the same way the apostles were. We haven't seen with our own eyes, we haven't heard with our own ears, but we can talk about what we know of Jesus the things recorded by Luke and the other Gospels. And as we do this, we're taking part in God's mission, in in what Jesus is doing. I know some of us feel discouraged about this. We're not sure if speaking about Jesus is worth it. We wonder, we doubt, whether God will do anything. Will God actually save anyone? And we feel discouraged because we've seen people walk away. Our friends, people who used to be part of our church, even our own children. And we are so discouraged. 
But Jesus is not just risen from the dead. He is ascended. And if God's plan and promise is for salvation to go to the ends of the earth, and if God's spirit gives power and more about him next week, then we have every reason for courage and hope. Jesus is king. His kingdom grows as we speak of him. So let's pray that we know this truth. And God would use our words about Jesus to grow and establish his kingdom. Let's pray.